Okay, we are continuing our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 here on the listener's commentary. And in this recording, we're going to specifically look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. And as we noted in our last recording, this is the second part of really applying the story of Moses and the veil to Paul's ministry. Now, he's he's in a large way, done with the specific imagery of that story. He wrapped that up in the first part, and yet he's still reflecting on why his ministry looks the way it does. So in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul emphasized the glory part of his ministry, that that's what he makes plain, is the glory of God and the gospel, and the glory of God thus flows through his ministry. And that's what his ministry is all about. Even though some can't see it or won't see it, that's what Paul and his team preaches, and that's what they embody, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he made that point in 4, 1 through 6. Now here, in the second part, in 4, 7 through 18, Paul then deals with a really important follow-up question that is being used to discredit him and discredit his ministry. It's a an issue that is really troubling some of the Corinthians. And that question is this. If Paul's ministry is supposed to be proclaiming the glory of God in the face of Christ, why does it look so weak, so ordinary, and so inglorious? Like, if it proclaims and embodies the glory of God in Christ, why doesn't it look like it? And that fact was really troubling Those in Corinth who questioned Paul and his ministry, it was being used by those who wanted to discredit Paul and kind of promote themselves. And we get to meet those guys in some regard and Paul's description of them a little later in 2 Corinthians. But this fact is really troubling some in the Corinthian church. And so now, having emphasized the glory of the ministry that Paul has been given, and that that glory centers on Jesus, who is the very glory of God, what Paul does here in this section, beginning in verse 7, is he turns to explain why his ministry is so full of weakness and suffering. I mean, that's not very glorious. That's not very impressive. And certainly you would think if Paul were really an apostle of a king like Jesus, his ministry would look more impressive than that, right? And so Paul now begins to explain why it is that this ministry of glory looks so inglorious. And he begins by noting in verse 7 that it's carried about, this glory is carried about in ordinary clay jars. Look at verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure, meaning this treasure of the glory of God in the face of Christ that he just mentioned in verse 6. We have this treasure of the gospel of God's glory in earthen containers, that is, in clay jars. That's what he means by earthen containers is clay jars. And clay jars were everywhere in Paul's world. They were just a part of life. That's how you transported water. That's what you ate off of. That's what you drank out of was clay containers, clay vessels. Everything was made out of earthenware clay containers. And so we have this treasure in earthen containers so that for this reason, for this purpose or goal, so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. 
And so verse 7 begins to answer this question, why is Paul's ministry like this? Why is all this glory seemingly masked in Paul's weakness, ordinariness, and suffering? And here's the initial statement of the reason. It's so that the power in Paul's ministry would clearly be from God and not from Paul and his ministry team. That's why it's carried about in these clay jars, these earthen containers. Um, the main thing about clay, clay jars is not just that they were ordinary and everyday dishes, but they were incredibly fragile, something that archaeologists are incredibly grateful for today because they have all sorts of notes uh, written on broken fragments of clay pots and clay jars. The point is here in verse 7 that the ordinariness of and the fragility of Paul and his uh, colleagues in ministry, and really any other Christian servant, the ordinariness and fragility of their, their physicality and their life keeps the focus on God and on God's power. And then what Paul does in what follows in verse 8 is he lists off various ways God's power shows up in and through Paul's ordinariness, Paul's fragileness. Um, and so he says in verse 8, we're afflicted in every way. We're ordinary, fragile, right? We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Now, just one little technical note that's really important, that phrase, in every way, it's probably best to see that as actually modifying the whole list of pairs that Paul gives in verses 8 and 9, not just modifying afflicted. And the reason for that is because it actually begins the sentence. The sentence begins, in every way, uh, we are afflicted, but not crushed. And so that's what I think Paul is getting at. In every way, he says, like, just look at our life, look at our ministry, you know, read through the book of Acts, if you will, and look at what happens to Paul. In every way, he is afflicted but not crushed, like he's troubled, um, he's harassed, he has difficulty and hardship and suffering, but he's not crushed. Uh, in every way, we are perplexed, but not despairing. That is, we're confused, at times we're at a loss, we're not sure the best way forward, but we don't despair. In every way, we are persecuted but not abandoned. So people persecute us and attack us and malign us, but we're not abandoned because God is with us in every way, struck down, but not destroyed. Uh, literally struck down is thrown down like in a wrestling match or in uh, an ancient war where hand, co hand combat was normal. So we're thrown down, but we're not destroyed. We're, we literally, we don't perish. We don't die. And then what Paul does after listing off those sets of pairs in verses 8 and 9 is in verses 10 through 12, Paul drives home the point with three sentences that really restate the same thing. And the point verses 10 through 12 are going to make is this, is that the experiences described by those sets of pairs, by being afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, and so on, those experiences... Uh, those experiences demonstrate the power of God, and they do so by embodying the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in the next three verses, verses 10 through 12, Paul gives three statements, all of which describe how his ministry operates in a way that embodies the death of Jesus so that the Corinthians 
And whoever else Paul preaches to can experience the life of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, always caring about. And so we're, we're afflicted and we're perplexed and we're persecuted and we're struck down, but we're not crushed, despairing, abandoned, or destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. In other words, Paul's picturing himself as like a clay jar, and his clay jar, his ordinariness and his fragileness is caring about in his physical body, in his body, the dying of Jesus. Um, that word dying is used only here and in Romans 4.19 in the New Testament, but it's the idea of deadness or the putting to death of something, the dying of something, right? Conceptually, it's a lot like take up your cross and follow me. We're caring about the cross of Jesus, the dying of Jesus. And how is he carrying it around? Well, he's carrying it around in his weakness, his sufferings, his persecution, his being at a loss and confused at times. Like his, his weakness and his ordinariness is how he's carrying around the dying of Jesus. And why is he carrying around the dying of Jesus? What's the aim or the goal? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So that through him, through his preaching, through his perse uh, perseverance and his ongoing ministry, he can manifest the very resurrection life of Jesus as well. Um, now, Paul really wants to drive home this point. So he said it in verse 10, and he's going to say it again in verse 11, because he really wants them to get this, that this is central to his understanding of ministry, his ministry, and really any genuine Christian ministry. So he restates it in a different way in verse 11. He says again, verse 11, for we who live Paul, his team, and any who are serving Jesus, we who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, on account of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. And that word, be revealed, is actually the same word that was translated open proclamation in verse 2 above. It's the exact same word. So that through Paul's life, through not just his preaching, but his embodied physical life, he may openly display the life of Jesus in his mortal flesh. Notice that his flesh that is subject to weakness, suffering, and death, his mortal flesh. And so his embodied experience as well as the words he proclaims, makes plain the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And just to make sure they get it and we get it, one more time in verse 12, very shortly and very succinctly, one more time, Paul restates it. He says in verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. This is a simple, succinct, brief restatement of the point of verses 10 through 12. Um, but now stated directly in relation to the Corinthians. The overall pattern of Paul's ministry ha is handed over to death to manifest Jesus' life. That's the pattern of Paul's life of ministry. And it's true in Corinth as well. It's the very pattern Paul has displayed in Corinth. And you can read in Acts uh, just one little excerpt of what happened to Paul in Corinth and how he was drugged before Gallio and and some of that sort of thing, right? This is the very pattern of life embodied by Paul. It's the very pattern of life 
shown to us by Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's to lay down your life for the sake of God and for the sake of others. This is what the glory of the gospel reveals, but it does so through ordinary and weak and fragile human vessels. Now, stop and think about that for a second. Like, why would anyone do that? A life given over to death in the proclamation of the gospel? A life marked by affliction and confusion and persecution and being knocked down over and over? A life pattern of being handed over to death in order to spread the life of Jesus? Like, why would Paul do that? Why would anyone do that? Well, that's where Paul goes in verses 13 through 15. And so verses 10 through 12 summarize the point. Here's Paul's pattern of of ministry. It follows the pattern of Jesus, handed over to death to manifest the resurrection life of Jesus. Why would Paul do that? Well, here's how he explains it in verse 13 and following. He says, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe. Therefore, we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. So this is Paul's uh, explanation of his thinking on that. Why does Paul do this? Well, he does so because of a certain spirit of faith that he has, having the same spirit of faith. And to illustrate that spirit of faith, He quotes from Psalm 116, according to what is written, and then he quotes, I believed, therefore I spoke. That's from Psalm 116, and Psalm 116 is a psalm of thanksgiving for rescuing someone from affliction and even from death, and and therefore the psalm very much fits with the immediate context here, and that's why it so clearly resonated with Paul. The psalmist in Psalm 116 has this faith that God will deliver him, even from death. Paul says, we have that same kind of faith. We also believe, and therefore we also speak. Because we have the same faith as the psalmist who spoke about God's deliverance, we speak as well. And what specifically does Paul believe? Well, verse 14, he zeroes in on, here's here's what's at the heart of his spirit of faith. Verse 14, he knows something. He knows that the one who raised Jesus is going to raise Paul and his team with Jesus. That they're going to be resurrected as well. And not only that, raise the Corinthians too and present them all together as one. And so the heart of Paul's belief is the resurrection. Um, That Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore Paul and the Corinthians and Paul's team, they will all be raised from the dead. And And that's the faith that leads Paul to keep on speaking, even when it's hard, even when he's being handed over to death. He keeps doing ministry, and he keeps being handed over to death because he knows he's going to be resurrected from the dead. And then in verse 15, Paul gives one last thing that keeps him going in the face of adversity. He knows that his ministry, not just that he's going to be resurrected, he knows that he's going to bring thanksgiving and glory to God by his ministry. So he says in verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, so that grace, having spread to more and more people, will cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. When he says all things at the beginning of verse 15, he means all things in his ministry. That's what he's talking about is his ministry. All the self-giving, all the hardship, 
all the suffering, all the humiliation, all of it, he says, is for their benefit, is for their sakes. And the reason for that is because he knows the, the result of that, that as grace is spread to more and more people, that is the message of Jesus and God's grace revealed in Jesus, that will actually cause more and more people to express their thanksgiving to God, to overflow with it, to abound with thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so all the things in his ministry aims at bringing God's grace to more people, which leads to more thanksgiving. And the ultimate end of that is more and more glory being given to God. And all of this is what drives Paul in his ministry. Trusting God's help and deliverance, especially uh, focused on the resurrection and the fact that he knows he's benefiting others and bringing thanks and glory to God, all of that drives Paul to keep going even in his fragile clay jar so that he can make plain the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so, having explained all of that, Paul now returns to where he began this chapter, chapter 4, and that is by saying he doesn't lose heart. Having received this ministry, he doesn't lose heart. And so now he returns to that in verse 16, and he says, Therefore, we don't lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. So lose heart restates that, that idea from verse one. And it's really, in a lot of ways, the theme of this section. God gave Paul and his team this ministry of glory, but they carry it around in the weakness and fragility and ordinariness of their human body, and they suffer for it. So how is it they keep going? And how is it that they don't give up in spite of the difficulties? And how is it that they don't lose heart? Well, he's explained all of that in the preceding verses to verse 16. And so now he simply restates, we don't lose heart. Um, we don't give up. We don't let up. We don't quit. And even though our outer person, that jar of clay that he's carrying around the glory of Jesus, and even though his outer person, his mortal flesh, his physical body, as he's called it in the preceding verse, verses, even though that is decaying, that idea of decaying is eating away at, like ministries eating away at Paul and his co-workers, and they're clearly taking a hit for it. But even though that's happening, his inner person is being renewed day by day. That inner person is the unseen part of you and I, the unseen part of a person, our inner self. It's the person that's already experienced spiritual resurrection in Jesus. And Paul says that part's being renewed day by day. And then Paul amplifies where this renewal is heading. Because he knows he's going to be raised from the dead, because he sees what lies ahead, that's what keeps him going, and that's what keeps him from not losing heart. And so he says in verse 17, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The picture is of a balance scale. That's the imagery Paul's using, which is how things were weighed in Paul's day. You would put a weight on one side, and then you would put whatever, say, you want to purchase on the other side, a piece of meat or some flour or something like that. And when the balance scale is even, you know, you got, if you got a pound of weight on one side, then you have a pound of flour on the other side. It's that picture of a balance scale. But what Paul says is all the affliction that he's suffering, all the hardship that he's going through, that is like 
Uh, that's just like a lightweight thing. And when you put the weight of glory on the other side, it is so much heavier that, it, that there's no comparison. And so the affliction that he's experiencing in view of where uh, life is going and God's purposes and plans are going, Paul says that affliction is actually momentary, short-term, temporary, and it's actually light. It's light in comparison not to the fact that it's not real and it doesn't hurt and it's not difficult and hard. It's light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. Um, that the glory that God uh, has for us in Christ, the glory that is revealed in Jesus, the glory that God is preparing for his people in the future, uh, completely outstrips and outweighs everything, uh, all the hardship that Paul and his team experiences. And so he says in verse 18, while we look at, while we focus on, not the things which are seen, because the things that are seen, they're hard, they're weak, they're difficult, they're challenging. So Paul says, that's not where we fix our gaze. While we look at, uh, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the things that have not yet appeared, but have been promised to us by God, um, for the things which are seen, they're temporary, they're temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so the thing that Paul has focused his gaze on as he goes through ministry is the eternal things, the unseen things that have yet to come or that have only come part way, the things that aren't fully here yet. Paul says we fix our gaze on that. Um, the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things, the eternal glory that awaits God's people. And so Paul doesn't lose heart because he, he looks at what's yet to come. He's not focused on his suffering and his hardship and his difficulty. He's focused on the things to come. And the things to come far outweigh anything that could happen in this life. And so as we wrap up this section, just a couple reflections. First, a life that embodies the gospel. That's what Paul has described for us here. That It's not just in his preaching that he shares the gospel, but in the manner of his living, he embodies the gospel. He embodies the self-emptying. He embodies the self-giving. He embodies the self-lowering of the gospel. What he describes being handed over to death so that he can give away the resurrection life of Jesus. And so may our lives as well embody that by self-giving, self-lowering, self-emptying. Rather than self-promoting and self-serving and all of that, let's get rid of that. Let's embody uh, the gospel. Let's take up our cross and follow Jesus by laying down our life for Jesus and for the sake of others so that we can promote the glory of God and give away the resurrection life of Jesus. And then the second reflection is what we see right here at the end, a focus on the life and the world to come. There is a resurrection for the people of God. We will be raised. Um, there will be a new heavens and new earth in which everything is made right. We don't have it yet. It's not seen yet, but we can fix our gaze on it in the promises of Scripture. And as we fix our gaze on that, it gives us strength and power to keep going and not lose heart. I love the line from uh, Mother Teresa on this sort of theme. She said, um, from the perspective of eternity, when we look back on the sufferings of this life, she says, it'll be like one bad night in a cheap hotel. We can certainly endure one bad night in a cheap hotel for the eternal glory that is yet to come. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. Uh, thanks a ton for the impact you're having on people all around the world by and through your support. Uh, may God be praised because of it. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount. Uh, you can give a one-time donation, or you can click a little box that says Make This Monthly. All monthly donors get access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. Thanks a ton for your support.